Take out your Bible this morning, opening once again to the book of Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Our text this morning is verses 11 through 21. And as you turn there this morning, just to kind of, again, be reminded, because it's been a, a number of weeks now, what we saw in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 is a comparison and a contrast between two cities, the city of man and the city of God, Babylon and Jerusalem. Now, we know that John is not speaking of literal geographical cities because even by his own day, Babylon is in ruins. It doesn't exist anymore. He's speaking of religiously, he's speaking spiritually of what Babylon represented and what Jerusalem represents spiritually. Jerusalem being the dwelling place of God, Babylon being that place of rebellion against God, of wickedness, of evil. And so there's a contrast between these two cities, the city of man and the city of God. And every human being belongs to one of those two cities. Now, every human being by nature belongs to the city of man, Babylon, because we are by nature sinners in rebellion against God. But by grace, God saves, delivers, adopts, embeds his people into the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, by grace. And so 17 and 18 is a contrast of these two cities and ultimately of the demise of Babylon, the demise of the city of man. Now, Revelation continues that same thought in that it's a comparison, a contrast, if you will, of two suppers, two suppers that each correspond to one of those two cities. Prior to the break we took from the book of Revelation for our Advent series and for last week's historical sermon from Isaac Ambrose, we left off looking at that glorious supper, the wedding supper of the Lamb, which was all about Christ. Christ is the object. Christ is the feast. It's all about Christ. But here in the last half of the chapter we're looking at this morning, verses 11 through 21, is speaking of a contrasting supper. Most clearly in verse 17, you'll see that it's called the Great Supper of God. And it's a contrast. So as wonderful and glorious as the first supper was, so dreadful and horrible will this supper be. It, it's literally, it reads like a horror film, but this is no film. This is reality. So let's look together at our text this morning Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. John says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for how it reveals to us you, how it reveals to us the glory and the wonder of Christ Jesus. And this morning, Father, as you have given us your word as a window to gaze at your son, Jesus, Father, we pray that you would shine your light upon our hearts, driving out all the darkness. Shine the light that we might see Christ and that we might know grace and peace and hope that comes through him alone, even in this most dark of contexts. It is in Jesus' name we do pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, as we look at Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, the title of the message this morning is The Christian's Strong Tower and Only Safety. The Christian's Strong Tower and Only Safety. You look at a text like this, and, and what do you do with it? I mean, as we, we read it, 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 it's horrific in that what we see here is, is the judgment of God upon his enemies. Upon, um, uh, we've seen it upon the prostitute in chapter 17 and 18. Previously, we've been introduced to the dragon's great allies. Here they're destroyed, thrown into a lake, and then everyone else. What do you do with a passage like this? Let's try to do what John did. Let's notice what John does. Where does he spend the most of his time? Look at verses 11 through 16. In spite of the horrors that he himself sees in this vision... What we see here is his primary preoccupation is with Christ. His primary preoccupation is this extraordinary description of Jesus that when you compare this to even his description of the events to come, those pale in comparison. John doesn't just rush past the one on the white horse and go right into it. Now, here's what he's going to do. But what other will we see? What he does is he focuses upon the one on that horse. John doesn't focus too quickly on the unfolding plan of God that plays out across history. Yeah, he does that. He does, but first he lingers on the one who's on the white horse, Jesus Christ, the one who triumphs over all his enemies. For John... Far more important than understanding what Christ is doing is knowing Christ himself. Let me say that again. 
for John, far more than knowing what Christ is doing, is knowing Christ himself. Everything else flows from that. True comfort, true consolation, true grace and peace for the Christian to whom John is writing this text. They're rooted in the person in Jesus Christ. And he established that from the very beginning. Go back to chapter 1, verse 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to describe a lot of events, but this is all centers around Jesus Christ. And then just a few verses later, he says to the churches that he's writing to, grace and peace to you in him who was and is and is to come. And then he talks about the Holy Spirit. And then he talks about Christ. He establishes where grace and peace and hope and all these things come from. It's not through knowledge of what's going to happen. It's in Christ. It's in God. And there's, just as we see here with John, there's nothing more important for us to do, no discipline more helpful for us to cultivate in our day than knowing Christ. Just as John lingers long on the person of Jesus Christ, so must we this morning. It's, it's like we saw last week in the, the words of Isaac Ambrose. Remember, as he counseled us on looking unto Jesus, biblically, what it is. He says this, looking unto Jesus is that great ordinance appointed by God for our special good. How many souls have busied themselves in the use of other religious means? And though in them, Christ has communicated some virtue to them, Yet because they do not trade more with Christ, they have little by comparison. Such a one as deals immediately and directly with Christ will do more in a day than another in a year. And therefore, this is the highest gospel ordinance, looking at Jesus. And that's what we see John doing here. It's easy, and I'm guilty of this, running right past these descriptions of Jesus because I want to know what's, what's going to happen. I want to get to the good stuff. And that tells us all we need to know. Christ is the good stuff. If we run past Christ, that's a, a great spiritual checkup. What is it really we treasure in our hearts? John is focused upon one thing preeminently, even in this passage, on the judgment of God upon his enemies. And that one preeminent thing is Christ Jesus. And so should it be for us. Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. What's the strong tower? The name of the Lord. And where does the righteous man run to find safety? to the name of the Lord. And that's what John's doing here in this passage. John is fleeing and running to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he plays out for us in so many different ways here in verses 11 through 16, the glory and the excellency of Christ, his names, his appearance. Time won't allow us to, to go through every nuance here. For my purpose this morning, I want to focus upon the names of Christ that he gives here. Because in both the Old and the New Testament, the idea of a name conveys more than just a, um, a moniker. It's more than just a, a, a title. A name is given for a purpose because it reveals something about the person, something that distinguishes this person from 
another person, from all other people. And that's why we see name changes in the Bible. That's why we see uh, from Abram to Abraham, from Saul to Paul, and so on and so forth. There's a change in their character. And the new name reflects they're not what they once were. And the same is true with the names of Christ. I mentioned it this morning in our prayer time. There are over 200 names of God in the Bible. If we count the titles, nicknames, names themselves, it's over 700. And it's to these that are given to us, not so that we just kind of shrug our shoulders at them, but like we see in Proverbs 18, that we run to this God. We run to the names of God because it's who he is. And in him, we find our safety. So let's look at four names that the text gives us about Christ. Number one, verse 11. John writes, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Again, he doesn't rush on to what the, horse, the guy on the horse does. The one sitting on it. Let's identify him because he's everything, is faithful and true. Such a sweet name. Faithful and true. Contemplate what that means. Christ is faithful. Well, in what way is he faithful? Fundamentally, he's faithful in that he fulfills everything God says in his word the Messiah was to be and to do. He's faithful. We talked about in our kids time this morning that there is one central object of this Bible one subject it's about Christ every story every person every ceremony every everything is revealing something to us about Jesus Christ and of that fact there really can be no debate Jesus himself says in Luke 23 when he's with the those on the road to Damascus he opened up the Old Testament and showed them how all of it pointed to him you, we can't debate that Jesus Christ is the Bible. Jesus Christ, the second of the, uh, of the Trinity. We find him on the opening page, Genesis chapter 1. In creation, the Father said, let there be light, and it's the Son who executes it. He's there. We read this in the New Testament. Christ is the creator who executes the Father's words. We get to chapter 3, just a few pages later. And, and we find out Christ is going to play a central role in God's eternal gospel in the execution of it with the announcement that though Adam and Eve had sinned against God and would indeed die, they would have a seed, a child, an heir who would come and undo all the consequences of sin that they brought into the world. He would undo all that and restore our relationship with God, with one another, with the creation. And then all throughout the pages of the Old Testament, God continually reaffirms the Messiah's coming. The child of Adam and Eve is coming. And he does it through various means. Covenants, typology, which again, just you look at people and look at their stories and you parallel that with what, who Jesus was and what he did. And you have to see that that's a foreshadowing of exactly who Jesus was. What they do is a foreshadowing of what Jesus accomplishes. So there's typology. The law itself reveals to us who Christ is. The book of Psalms is all about Christ. The prophecies of a coming Messiah are all prophesying of Christ. 
the storyline of the Old Testament of deliverance, of redemption, of, of freedom is a picture of what God will accomplish through Christ in our deliverance from sin in the New Testament. All of that lays out in the Old Testament. And then wonder of wonders, we get to the New Testament in the fullness of time after some 2,000 years of waiting and promising God sent forth his son, Jesus, into the world. And all of those promises of God, all of those prophecies of God, all those forms and types and ceremonies, all those things that were pointing to him, lo and behold, guess what we find in Christ? He fulfills every one of them. The New Testament opens up Christ and shows how he is the true and better prophet. He is the true and better priest. He is the true and better king. He's the true and better deliverer. He's the true and better Moses. He's the true and better David who defeats our Goliath. He's the true and better everything. Everything was pointing to him, and lo and behold, when he arrives, he is the fulfillment of it all. Jesus Christ is faithful. He's faithful to the literally hundreds of promises, prophetic words, types, pictures, allusions that we see. Not one does he drop the ball on. There's not one you can look, ah, Jesus fell short in his person or work when it came to this office or this work or this person. He's faithful. Faithful to God the Father, faithful to himself as the Son, faithful to the Holy Spirit. He's faithful to the Word of God. The one on the white horse, he's faithful, but not only that, he's true. Out of his faithfulness, Christ personifies truth. And Jesus himself said this. He laid claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As we consider the great context here of Revelation chapter 19, if we're reading it all, we've got to be unsettled by the description of what we see coming. We have a contrast of two suppers. One glorious, the other one, it's reminiscent of Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, only far worse. And we, at that point, we have to be candid about the fact difficult for us to process. If all of us are rebels before God, sinners worthy of, of the wrath of God, why are there two suppers? Why is not everybody the, an actor in God's version of the birds? Why are we not all in that supper? Why are there two suppers? If we're thinking through what we're reading, we have to understand this is difficult. There's something about this that maybe even, we, careful here, unfair, that I don't understand. And then you've got to wrestle with the fact, well, what do we expect? Do we expect that God who enters into our world, God who is holy, altogether different from us. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. Our ways are not his ways. Are we shocked when we find that what he does doesn't settle with us? That it confuses us? That we're uncomfortable with it? It, it doesn't come as a surprise to us in light of God's holiness. In light of the fact 
he's solitary in his perfections and his glory. And yes, we're created in his image, but we are not God. And so his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so there's always, can I say this again? Always a sense of difficulty when we look at what God is doing. The doctrine of the Trinity. There's difficulty with that. The doctrine of election. There's difficulty with that. That God would send some to heaven and some to hell, but they're all sinners worthy of hell. That's difficult for us. But though they're difficult, the rider on the white horse executing these things that are so difficult for us to comprehend is faithful and what? True. He is true. I'm not. You're not. He is. He's the one who's true. And he's the one in in whatever he does subsequent to this. It's always right. It's always just. It's an impossibility for whatever God does in Christ to not be True, which is why Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You may think you can take it upon yourself and find another way. There's a kind of an end around. But I'm telling you, I am faithful and true to my God. There is but one way. It is the true way. And all that I do at the beckon and will of my Father, is true. Because I am truth. What that means, church, we don't have to worry about Christ making a mistake. He's a perfectly just judge. His judgments are always trustworthy, reliable, and sound on that day. As Jesus warns when many say, But Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't I do that? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. At no point is he wrong. He is true. Now think back. We're on the first Sunday of 2019. Think back to the last year. Hasn't Jesus proven himself to be this name for you? When other people's made promises to you in 2018, or when you made promises to other people, Hopefully you kept all of them. I'm guessing you didn't, nor did they. But contrast with that, hasn't Christ always been true to you? No matter what the situation, did he ever deceive you? Uh, Not to say that you always embraced wholeheartedly, I I love everything, but did he ever deceive you? No. Did he ever once forget you? In your darkest of days, those, that season of life this last year that you were in, did, did he ever once forget you? When you were downcast, did he bring you out of it? Maybe you're in the middle of it right now. He is true. He's faithful and true. And take solace. He has purpose in what you're going through. He will bring you through. Either in this life or ultimately through in the next one. Hasn't he given you above what you deserve? kept every promise he's made to you, fulfilled every word he's spoken. This is the richness 
of Christ Jesus, being faithful to God and true to God. That, that has implications for us as well. He's faithful and true to us. And it would be an impossibility for him to be otherwise. How rich is this name of God, faithful and true. But not only that, there's another name that John beholds. Verse 13 He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The Word of God. You gotta, when you come upon that title, the Word of God, I hope your mind immediately goes back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then I hope that the next connection you make is, wait a minute, the same John who wrote that is the same John who's writing this. What we have here in this title, the Word of God, is, is literally one of John's favorite titles for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's why that's significant. Don't rush past the Word, the Word of God. Who was John in relation to Jesus? Bear with me here for just a minute. Listen to how one commentator provides this helpful description. John was the beloved disciple, the one who leaned in close to Jesus at the Last Supper, the John who stood at the foot of the cross as the Lord hung dying, who was trusted by Jesus with the care of his own mother. He, along with Peter and James, was of the inner circle of disciples who went with Jesus through the most intimate and dramatic circumstances of his ministry. This John saw and heard and loved more of Jesus than any other. That's the John we're talking about here. Not just some static author of a book of the Bible. This was the beloved disciple who loved Jesus uniquely, supremely. He stood out from all the rest and he had visions of Christ that others didn't have as the inner circle. He saw the transfiguration. Out of this position of intimacy with Christ, his writing, when it comes to writing about Jesus, is unique in its intimacy about Jesus. You following me there? Yes, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, yes, they had access to Jesus. Yes, they wrote about Jesus, and they had their own purpose in writing. John's is unique. Out of the relationship he had with Jesus, the intimacy, his book is quite distinguished from the others. Even in where he begins, his story. Here he is, he writes his gospel, probably around 85, so some good 50 years after Jesus has died. And where does John, when he wants to start talking about the one that has captivated his soul, the one that he still loves more than anything else, when he wants to communicate this one, where does he begin his gospel? Not with the birth of Jesus in his physical life, but he begins in eternity. He brings everything he knows about Jesus. Where do I begin that they may believe who this one is? The only way to make sense of it. I got to start in eternity past. Everything I'm about to tell you, he was God. The beauty of this man is that he was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now everything else in his gospel is shaped by this fact. The majesty of this man is that he is God incarnate. 
And then he goes on to say, we, including himself, have seen this glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. I saw it full of grace. And here it comes again, truth. I saw it. I beheld it with my own two eyes. And here in Revelation 19, he has this vision of his, the one he loves, the one who some, now it's, you're 95 approximately, so some 65 years, he sees his Christ again. And there's the word embedded in this vision. The word of God. God's word throughout the Old Testament in John 1 has to do with God's self-expression of himself. God's word is his self-expression, his revelation of himself. Now, he reveals himself in creation, in revelation, in eternal salvation, but ultimately in Christ. That's why when Christ comes, Christ is the word. He is the revelation of God, the ultimate self-disclosure of God, of who God is. You want to know God. You want to see God. You look at Jesus. And this is why the author of Hebrews begins his epistle this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And he's the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. So, John now in Revelation chapter 19, it's been 60 years since he's seen physically Christ live, die on the cross, his resurrection, watched him ascend through the clouds. And now he's given another vision of his Jesus. And this one, he's coming to judge the wicked. And as that one is coming, he's reminded of who this one is. It's the word of God. This is God himself coming to us. Christ is the faithful and true. He is the word of God. Stay with me. There's a third one. Look at verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a blessing that title should be. To just pause and meditate. Of all kings and all lords and presidents and leaders, this one, Christ, is supreme. King of kings, Lord of lords. Our, our husband, right, as the church of Jesus Christ, we're the bride. Our husband is regal, is royalty. He possesses this glorious name. And in chapter 17, John has already said that when the beast and the army wage war against the lamb, they will discover he's Lord of lords and kings of kings. He's going to conquer them. And the picture here is collectively the world and its anti-God forces. They collectively seek to stand against Jesus Christ. And you can look out across the horizon today and see how this happens. We can look out today. Shutting down churches, throwing believers into prison, 
kidnapping, killing Christians. Now that, that doesn't happen so much here as it does around the world. But more in this country, deriding the Bible, watering down the gospel message, infiltrating churches with a Jesus plus type religion that gives the feel of being Christian. I mean, there's, uh, we talk about Jesus, we sing about Jesus, but Jesus isn't all. But here, this is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And all of that opposition will fizzle before the presence of the true King of kings and Lord of lords. So much so, what do we read in Philippians? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not just Christians. Every king, every Lord will bend the knee. Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. There's a word of caution there for you and I. We live in a day today of great political intrigue. There's an awful lot going on in Washington, D.C. these days. A lot of political repositioning and maneuvering after those midterm elections. There's a, a lot of anxiety and, and anticipation eyeing already the next presidential election two years away. And we as Christians are not immune to the temptation to preeminently engage those thoughts and to put our hope in political leaders, political offices, the government, having the right person in the Oval Office or our preferred political party in control over the Senate, the House. But we as Christians would benefit from a far more concentrated gaze, not on Washington, but upon the King of Kings and upon the Lord of Lords. That's what John is doing here. Even in a world right now, in his day, where the Roman Empire is still alive and well. He's got political intrigue going on all around him as well. His hope is in his King of kings and Lord of lords. So, he's the faithful and true, the Word of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And every one of those deserve their very own message, their very own meditation. And they're good titles, good names but they're insufficient. Look at verse 12, go back up. His eyes, speaking of the one on the white horse, Jesus Christ, his eyes are like a flame of fire. That means he sees all, he knows all. And on his head are many diadems, many crowns. He's the king, he's the Lord. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. A name that no one knows but himself. This is not speaking of some private matter between him and the Father. This is speaking of the transcendence and incomprehensibility of the Lord Jesus Christ. This title, a name that no one knows but himself, this reminds us, no matter how much we think we know about Jesus, we actually know nothing at all, by comparison. We know very little. 
each aspect of our knowledge of Christ, as long as it accords with Scripture, is something that, yes, God has revealed to us. And yes, it is true knowledge, if it's biblical, that we can know about Jesus. Yet, none of us have plumbed the depths or soared the heights that is the limitless, the limitless fullness of the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is why you can gaze upon Jesus Christ every day of your life and you never come up short. You never walk away saying, oh, again? You cannot exhaust the fullness of who Christ is. And what John is implying is that both in this life and the next, there will be things we never know about Christ. We say often, and it's true, things we won't know about Christ until eternity. And we will spend all eternity getting to know Christ. But because Christ is limitless in his fullness, because in him the fullness of deity dwells, that means all of eternity where there is no end, we still will, there will be things we don't know about Christ. Let that soak in. Let that sink upon your heart. The majesty, the gravity, the weightiness, the glory of this one. Do you see why, why John cannot rush past this Christ to go see? What's he going to do? This Christ is everything to him. There's so much more about Christ. Things that he knows about himself. Things the Father knows about him. But things we don't know. Some of those things he will be pleased to reveal to us as the Spirit guides us in our study of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way to the book of Revelation. You can turn to any page and pray, God, help me to see the fullness of grace and truth in Christ the way John did. And the Spirit may be pleased if we are approaching it with the right heart, the right motive, to allow us the privilege of seeing more and more of the glory of Christ. But having said that, at no point will we ever exhaust it all. Jesus himself is just too great, too glorious, too beautiful to be captured by any one name, any one title. You can take the over 200, combine them together, put them together and, and frame it and say, this is who Jesus is. And oh, poor soul, we're still not coming close. Christ is beyond all names. He has a name that no one knows except himself. The next time you're tempted to believe in light of my problem, looking to Jesus, man, it's just so, just seems so mundane, out of touch with reality. Go back to Revelation 19, 12 and ask God to open your eyes to the reality of a Christ who has a name that no one knows but himself. And then let us repent and pursue all that the Father would be pleased to give us of his beloved Son, Jesus. Now, those are the four titles. In this passage, time's not going to allow us. There's other appearances of Christ that I would urge you in this week to come as you're looking unto Jesus, go back and look at the appearances. The eyes of fire, the diadem, the, the robe dipped in blood. Go back and look at some of these appearances. There's more and more and more of Christ to behold in this passage. But here's the point I want to make with you this morning about these names. 
All throughout the Bible, God gives us names of himself and of his son, Jesus. And he always does so. There's, like we said, over 200 of them. Over 700 if we take them. Those are always specifically chosen to meet the need of the context. What I mean by that is this. If you were with us in our prayer meeting this morning, which if you weren't, I'd love to know. It's a great time to get back into it. But this morning in Psalm 144, David, in his sense of need, as he's seeking God, God giving him, inspiring him to write this down, what were the names that he picked from? Uh, he could have said God is holy, God is righteous, could have used any number of names that God has revealed of himself. But he picks, he's my deliverer, my fortress, my stronghold, my, my trainer. Why those? Because in the context of the battle he was in, that was what he needed of God. That was what he most clung to of God. Think about it this way. If you're in a marriage, I bet you probably have nicknames for your spouse. We'll spare each other the details. But here's what, I'll take this a step further. I bet that there are certain circumstances on a day-in and day-out basis where those nicknames get used. If it's on a playful date night, I bet you get the playful nickname. If your spouse is a little upset with you, I bet they don't call on that nickname, do they? They probably have a whole different nickname, which may be very spirited. It may involve your middle name, but there's a completely different name. And maybe when there's a version of you that's just focused upon your, I'm just, your work, you know, you're busy, you're into it, and, and the spouse comes along, I mean, you're just, here's this nickname. Specific to the context, you, you yourself have your own nickname. That's exactly what we see here in God's Word. These names of God are given in a context that matches the context in which they find. So Psalm 144, we could also take into account in Thessalonians where Paul is praying for peace for the Thessalonians. Who does he pray to? The God of peace. Or in, in John 17, when, when Christ is praying for the sanctification of those that God has given to him. Sanctification means what? That we'd be holy like God. Who does he pray to? Holy God. The names of God are utilized to match the need. And that's what's being done here in this passage. With all these names here in the context of a horrific judgment day, when King Jesus will come and rule and reign over the church's enemies, keep in mind the broad context of the book of Revelation. Right? We're living in the period between the first advent and the second. And in this time, we live in a world with an enemy and all his arsenal who's trying to drift us away from Christ. And the prayer of the saints has been, Lord, how long will you let this go on? How long till you bring an end to this? Well, Revelation 19 and chapter 20, is saying, it, here it comes. And for you, Christian, who by grace you're not, a citizen of the city of man. Oh, that's where you were born into. But by grace, I've adopted you through the shed blood of my son, Jesus Christ, where he died the death you deserve to die. I poured out my wrath upon him instead of you, and you've received his righteousness through repentance and faith, two sides of the same coin. You've turned to Jesus Christ. You've made him, you've forsaken all else. What did Ambrose tell us last week? Looking unto Jesus is twofold. Looking off everything else and looking all unto Jesus Christ. He is all. And by grace, 
you've been brought into the city of man. And you're about to see horrific things going on all around you. You, Christian, live upon these names. Live upon these titles. Because, why? Does not our faith waver? Do we not struggle? So, yes, the context is the climax of history, Judgment Day coming. And it's almost as though before John brings all that into, the promised judgment of God upon his enemies, he ministers to the church by grace and says, before you see all this that happens to those who reject Jesus Christ, let me be remind you who you are in Jesus. And the titles do this for us. Number one, do you ever worry about the future? You worry about your future. Do you ever struggle with assurance of your salvation? Maybe you don't. I'm not going to throw that out broadly, but listen, I doubt I'm the only one in the room who does, who struggles from time to time when seasons of sin strike. Do we ever worry about the future? Seek the faithful and true one. Seek the one who has never failed. And by grace, God has sent to save you. And his name as faithful means he can never fail. And time's not going to allow us, but go and look at his appearance, a robe dipped in blood. Keep in mind this. The bloody part hasn't come yet. There's a lot of discussion. Whose blood is that? I'm not concerned with splitting hairs. I do find this very helpful. There's blood on his robe. I'm reading a quote from another commentator. There's blood on his robe before he comes forth to the final battle. His robe is stained before he comes to the final battle. The question is, whose blood is it? Well, from the whole of the book of Revelation, says John, and from the whole of the New Testament, there's only one answer. The blood on his robe is his own. It's his robe. What kind of robe is it? It's a priestly robe, a high priestly robe, a king's robe. And it's stained with his own blood. The great truth we must never lose sight of is that this Jesus Christ conquers and reigns not because he will win a battle yet to be fought, but because he has already triumphed by the blood of his cross. He has shed his blown blood, and he is already triumphant. So if we fear, oh Lord, might it be true of me? Well, I believe I've begun the race. Will I finish it? Fix your gaze on the faithful and true. He who began a good work in you cannot not finish it. That would not just be bad for you. It would be detrimental to him. He is faithful and true. Do you ever, in the midst of tribulation and hardship, find yourself looking at the wrong things? When sufferings come, Jesus is the answer to everything. Do you ever find yourself looking and turning, trying to find the answer in something else? Of course you do. I do. That's part of our fallen nature. This is where we need to be discerning here. We come at this part of the book of Revelation, I think John is a great help, where it's very easy to run right past these wonderful revelations of Jesus Christ and turn right to, I want to see what's going to happen. I want to see the bloodshed. I want to see the judgment. I want to see, and I want to know when. I want to know who. I want to know where. And we can almost, but you ever been in a situation where you're at an event 
and just in, at the wrong moment, you turn and you're looking over here, and the action, something spectacular happens behind you. And I was like, oh, that's a danger. Here in the book of Revelation, we can be so, what's going on? Who, who, who what, when, where, why? That we miss. It's all about Christ. One commentator puts it this way, to put it bluntly, I believe Christians are entirely too obsessed with the coming judgment, the meaning of the thousand years spoken of in chapter 20. We want to know, is it a literal thousand years? We want to know, does it place before or after the return of Jesus? And many other questions beside. And all the while, our attention is fixed on the wrong thing. You see, Christ is the word of God, the revelation of God. Why would we look at anything else? Look to the Word, Jesus Christ. Does your faith ever weaken? You find your heart drifting away to another lover, to another king, to another ruler? Look to Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and return to the true king. Do you ever shrug your shoulders at the simplicity of a sermon like this and think, I'd really hope he would have gotten into all these other things. But here it is, another one on Jesus. Not that anyone would ever say it so cavalierly, but you know. Oh, Christ is so much more than we ever imagined. He has a name that only he knows because you and I could never plumb the heights or the limitless depths of his glory and greatness. Look to the one who has a name that no one knows but himself and ask God, Lord, Humble me. Show me. My view of Jesus is far too inadequate. Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it. This morning, whatever your situation, the name of the Lord, Christ is enough. He's sufficient. Take any of these four names that apply to your situation. And if not these four, Spend some time this week in the Word. There's over 200 more you can go find that speaks to your situation. Christ is enough. Will we run to Him?